Okay, good. Uh, let's go ahead and turn over to the book of Song of Solomon. We're going to go ahead and go back to the series we've been on, the story of the romance. And I want to just take a few moments and talk about the book of Song of Solomon. Or I should say, talk about the Lord from the book of Song of Solomon. Several years ago, when I first <clears throat> heard the message from Song of Solomon, um, I, didn't, I didn't know what to think. I thought, you know, I'm... That's kind of the part of my Bible where the pages are still stuck together. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) You've had the Bible a long time, but there's just parts you you know the pages still stuck because you hadn't read it very much. And and I remember thinking, wow, anybody that would be focused on Song of Solomon as a main facet of their Christianity, I'm not so sure about that. That's kind of flowery, and the language is a little bit you know kind of foo foo like. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Just kind of. Not strong enough, and, and, and that's kind of where I oriented from. I just, if it, if it wasn't fiery and revival and repent and pray, and it wasn't like just in your face calling us to, to holiness or something like that, I just, I didn't have much time for it. And uh, so I remember when I first started hearing it, it was almost, it was just like a new sound to my ears. It was like a, you know, like a dog hearing a new sound. And, and um, but I very quickly... <laughs> very quickly realized that this book is a massive missing element in much of the body of Christ. The, the understanding of this book is a, an essential part of our Christianity. And when we live without understanding this book, and, and, and I see it as an allegory and it, it's and on several levels, but primarily I see it as an allegory between Jesus and us as believers. And uh, I believe it's an allegory between Jesus and the church uh, globally, but uh, I primarily see it, and the way I primarily apply it is uh, Jesus and me personally, how he, how he relates and leads me. And when we get the revelation of this book and what the Lord says about us, and what it tells us about him, I mean, everything changes. And that was my experience. Once I began to understand, even in, a, even in an introductory way, the truths that are laid out in the book of Song of Solomon, everything changed. And, uh, and so if, if you've kind of ever thought this book's kind of light and fluffy, I would challenge you on that. And I would encourage you, Hey, uh, take a light and fluffy season and go ahead and spend it in the book of Song of Solomon for a month or two and see what happens to your heart because it will cause passion to arise in you, I think, almost like nothing else uh, in the Scripture. Now, as I said, this book, it's an allegory, and I, the way I see, you can see it on several levels, but the primary way you see it, that the primary way that I apply it, is it's an allegory of my journey, my personal journey between me and the Lord. And I think when believers take the truths from the books of Song, the Book of Song of Solomon that's, that are laid out, and we apply them to our to our lives personally in a personal way, it will impact our emotions, give us insight to the knowledge of God, give us understanding of His emotions, and and change many many different ways of the way we perceive our walk and the challenges we go through in this life, and also God's attitude toward us. And so uh, what I want to do, and I want to do it this week and next week, I want to continue in this series that we've been doing on the story of the romance, and I want to just um, lay out some of the key concepts of this book for us.
But I want to call you, many of you who've never spent a season uh, studying this book, I want to call you into the study of it. And here's what I've come to find out, especially as we were just ministering on being in a dry season or being in a season where there's delay. One of the things I've come to find out is this. When I am dry or when I feel great uh, 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 ad- uh, oppression of the adversary, if I'll go back and study the emotions of God in the book of Song of Solomon, if I'll go back and look at the journey of the bride in the book of Song of Solomon, it will give me perspective that I did not have. Because, you know, when you get dry and you just kind of keep showing up and you're sort of just doing it out of faithfulness, many times you can lose perspective on God's emotions and the way God feels and the way God thinks and what God is doing. And you need to go back, as we talked about several weeks ago, we need to go back and reset and understand that our journey in this life is a romance. It's God romancing our heart. And it's the ups and downs and the, the trials and the blessings that God uses to formulate our hearts to make us comparable partners for His Son, Jesus. Well, when I go back and, I, and I'm in those dry seasons and I begin to read the book of Song of Solomon, all of a sudden I get a much better perspective on my uh, specific circumstance and on the uh, truth of who God is and, and the way He thinks and feels about me. Here's what I've come to find out. When I'm in a dry season... Or when I'm in a season of delay, where the, the answers seem to be delayed. Or when I'm in a season of uh, 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 oppression, where the enemy is, is attacking. Most of the time, the first thing that takes a hit is my uh, revelation of the knowledge of God. Come on. And you don't, you don't realize it when you're in that dark season. When things are or dry, or challenging, you don't realize that you begin to think a little bit differently about God. But many, many times I realize that, that, that going through a, a challenging season will affect the way I think about God. I'll think, He's withholding from me. He's making me work real hard. He doesn't like me as much as He used to. And, and all of a sudden, many, many uh, lies about who He is and what He's doing begin to creep in. And, and we wouldn't say them like, God doesn't like me now, or, or anything. We wouldn't just proclaim that. But the feelings are real, aren't they? Come on. And so what we've got to do is go back, and I tell you, the the book of Song of Solomon, it is the guidebook. It's the guidebook to the romance, to our journey with God in this life where he is formulating our heart to make us comparable partners for his son Jesus not, not out of a, you know, sort of whip you and beat you into shape kind of uh, philosophy, but out of a, a thing where he tenderizes us in love. And he's, he's bringing us, you know what the Lord's doing, us, doing with us in this life? He's bringing us to this thing called love sickness. Jesus, the bridegroom, he is right now lovesick for his bride. And he's, what the Lord is doing is he's raising up a bride in the earth that has a matching passion of Jesus. The bride would love him the way that he loves her. He's bringing us to love sickness in this life so that in the day when we see his face, there is a a brimming, boiling desire and longing and passion for him just as he has for us. And this book describes that journey into making us comparable partners. He's, he's, He's causing our hearts to be awakened in love, and that's the journey of our life making us a comparable partner for his son and bringing us to this place of being lovesick. Lovesick, that means this, I can't do without Jesus' love. 
I can do without titles. I can do without a platform. I can do without millions of dollars. I can do without the praise of men. I can do without everybody's accolade. I can do without all these things. I can do without, you know, material possessions. But there's one thing I can't do without. His love. It's called being lovesick. And that's what he takes us to. And so what I've come to do is, as I've found this, as I've seen, I, as I've studied the, the book of Song of Solomon, I see the journey of this maiden in the book of Song of Solomon, I see it as my journey. And I believe this. Every Christian, every Christian who's seeking the Lord, who has a sincere kind of lean in the heart toward the Lord, they go through the journey that this maiden in the book of Song of Solomon goes through. Every Christian goes through this journey at different points in their life. And sometimes you repeat the journey. And you're not necessarily repeating it because you got it wrong. It's just part of the formulation process. And so we ebb and flow through the different pages of the book of Song and Solomon depending on where we are in our lives. And so I hope that this will be an encouragement to you and that you'll be able to find yourself in the story. And I, I, I believe that every Christian needs to have a, gri- a grasp on this book so that they can rightly interpret these seasons of their lives. So let's take a look at this. I'm just going to hit the high points. I'm not going to go line by line. We do, a, uh, we do a 12-week course where we go line by line. We do like 18 hours of teaching on the book of Song of Solomon. And I would encourage you, the next time we offer it in the school of ministry, if you want, if you want to take that, to, to go for that, uh, I would encourage you to go take that class. Okay, let's take a look here. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 4. This is sort of the mission statement of the book. That's the way I see it. So she says, draw me after you, or draw me away. I've got it in my notes in the NIV. But it's draw me away, and we will run after you. Now, the NIV says, draw me after you, and let us run together. And I think that's actually a little bit... bit, uh, more precise, draw me after you and let us run together. It says, the king has brought me into his chambers and we will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And so the, the, uh, I think the mission statement of the book, if you can think of it that way, is draw me away and let us run together. This is the bride, this is the maiden, and she's saying, here's what I need. Here's what my heart longs for. I long to be drawn away in love by you, and I long to partner with you in all that you want me to do. And so she prays this prayer that draws her into the, uh, that sets her up to be drawn into the depth of a love relationship with the Lord and to partner with the Lord in obedience and everything the Lord would call her to do. And that's exactly what the Lord wants from our lives. He wants to sort of woo our hearts, tenderize our hearts with the revelation of his emotions and his love for us unto us being abandoned in heart, free in heart to do whatever it is that he's commissioned and destined us to do. And in those realities, we will find the height of pleasure in this age. The height of pleasure in this age. Knowing his love in a deep and intimate and real way and partnering with him uh, obediently and and an abandonment in all that he's asking us to do. So she sets herself up. She says, draw me away and let us run together. Draw me away in intimacy and let me partner with your plan. And this is the first and second commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. 
It is the first and second commandment. And I'll tell you what I did for a long, long time is this. I lived my life doing the second commandment, loving my neighbor as myself, giving myself and loving others in ministry, doing everything I can to, to, to serve and, and give, others in, to, to give to others in ministry but without really focusing on the first. It, it's not that I, I didn't love God. I, I surely loved God, and I, and I wanted to, to flow back and forth and love with God, but, but what it seemed like was this, that the ministry and the needs of the ministry and, and sort of much of our focus in the body of Christ is we focus on all those that need to know the love of God, but many times we don't actually tend to our own self. Our own self. We don't tend to ourselves. Feeling a little southern right there. So many times we'll get rolling in the second commandment, giving ourselves away for the service of others without a real healthy love relationship flowing back and forth between us and the Lord, without being solidified and anchored in the truth of His love for us. I've come to believe this, that if I do not know his love for me in a vibrant, passionate way that causes my heart to be alive, causes me to be free and and flowing, if I don't know his love impacting my emotions in in a bright way, how then can I tell others of his love for them? The logic fails. Yet we, most of the time we spend, uh, we spend focusing on us, on the second commandment, loving others without any real connection in, in, a, in a focused way to the first commandment. Of course, yes, we know Jesus loves us, but we don't give ourselves to the, to the understanding of, of the love of God, God's love for us and our love for him, flowing back and forth in love with God. And here's what we've got to become. We have and we must become. We've, we've said it many times, but I tell you, it's so easy to stray away from it. We must become a people that have the first commandment in first place. If the first commandment is not in first place, I tell you, I know exactly what happens to you because I lived this way for many years. You ended up, you end up living beaten up and broken and burned out in your heart. And what you do is you get, you know, a spurt of Holy Spirit energy and then you crash. And then you get a little bit more and God props you up and you crash. Rather, and I don't think, I think we're supposed to hit mountain after mountain after mountain, but I don't think we're supposed to crash in the valley in between. I think what he wants us to do is this, live alive and flowing in love so our heart stays buoyant. Our heart stays energized. We have might in the inner man through the revelation of love like Ephesians 3 tells us. Our hearts are alive because we understand God's passion. We're drawn away in love and then we run together with him in ministry. And I tell you, when we don't have that drawn away in love, flowing back and forth, when we don't have that flowing back and forth relationship in love with God, and we go do ministry, you will, I promise you, I know it firsthand because I'm the poster child for it, you will be beat up and broken and burned out for sure, and you get cranky about ministry needs. Amen. So true. He never called us to do ministry at the expense of relationship with God. He never called us to go spend ourselves while we are absolutely broken down and burned out. 
What he called us to do is live with a fresh invigoration of life-giving passion with God, with our hearts alive, flowing back and forth with him. And then from there, the overflow is we're easily able to love those with needs. We have grace for those that need grace. We have patience and mercy and kindness to give freely to those that need it. Why? Because our hearts are invigorated with the revelation of God's patience and mercy and kindness toward us. I started realizing this, that everything the Lord commands us to do and be in the Bible, it's because he's actually inviting us into knowing God in that very same attribute. For instance, when he says, I want you to be patient, what he's really doing is he's, he's kind of, he's, he's kind of uh, tricking us into finding out what patience is. Well, how do you find out what patience is? Look to the one who is patience itself, the Lord. The very first facet of love is love is patient. And when you, when you see God inviting you and he's, he's asking you to do something, to be patient, he's actually inviting you to know him in that very same attribute. And so when we go to give ourselves away in love, what we end up doing is bumping in to the knowledge of God and his knowledge and the knowledge of who he is. It impacts our hearts. Our hearts come alive and then we can actually do ministry to others. We have to have the first commandment in first place, beloved. We have to have the first commandment in first place. And I'll just say this. We need to freely give people license to spend seasons of their, of their life getting reset in heart so that their hearts are back alive in love. And I think sometimes our mentalities of ministry, it's almost like we think of the Lord as a slave driver just demanding us to do, 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 do all this stuff. And people aren't allowed to have a season of be. And I think the Lord would love us to have the both and, the be loved and and the do the works of the ministry and have those married. It's being drawn away and running together. And so she sets it up. She says, draw me after you, let us run together. And this is, it's sort of the vision statement or the mission statement of the whole book. Now, she goes on. And and so here we see in verse 5, the beginnings of her journey. And beloved, this is the beginnings and the, it's the byline of our journey. And says this, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. I am dark but lovely. And this is the revelation that God loves us even in our weakness, even in our dry times, even in our brokenness, even in our failures. God loves us. And I, and I love the, uh, the uh, maiden here because she is not one who tries to say, I am not dark, but, but God loves me. And, and knowing the issues of her heart or darkness, she doesn't try to put on the Christian facade and act like everything's perfect. She shows up and she goes, no, I, I kind of get it. I am broken down and I've got issues. I am dark. But even in the truth of my darkness and my weakness and my frailty staring me in the face, God considers me lovely. Even in my poor uh, performance, God loves me. Even in my inability to be perfect, God delights in me and he takes pleasure in me. And beloved, that right there, that is the 101 of understanding the love of God. He doesn't love you because you're perfect. He doesn't love you because you performed well. He loves you because he is love. And he takes pleasure in his people. 
And his people are those that have a sincere yes. And a sincere yes doesn't mean that you live perfect all the time. A sincere yes simply means you, you're just saying yes. I, God, you, you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And I, I say yes. And I say I'm, I'm weak and I'm broken, but I say yes. And he goes, you are dark. You have, you have frailty. I know your frame. I know you're but dust. He goes, but oh, do you know the way you move me? Do you know the way? You touch me. And I tell you, there, beloved, is a gap that most of us have the, the, the hardest time getting over. That I, I'm broken, like broken down me. With my issues, my insecurities, my failures. Yet, I move his heart. He likes me. He takes pleasure in me. That revelation right there is a cornerstone revelation. It's, it's, it's one of the ones that changed my life. Because all of a sudden I realized, though I'm weak, his love for me is not based on my performance. He loves me because he is love. And there's a yes in my heart. And he knows, he sees that yes and he knows it's sincere. And because there's this lean in my heart, I go, oh, I'm trying, God. I'm broken down, but I'm trying. He goes, I love you. It's okay. It's all right. Any of you with children, you, you'll, you'll, know what it, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, but there, there's times when our children, they get worked up and worried and upset over things that don't matter. And, and I can think about how my uh, sons, each of them, there's just times when they're just <sighs> freaking out. And, and sometimes it has to do with maybe something they did. And, and uh, you know, we just, in our home, we just made a decision that we were never, ever going to discipline um, failure or mistakes. And so, so much in the world, it's, you know, you get disciplined when there's a mistake. And you, you didn't mean it, but you're getting pounded. And we think that's the Lord. And so my children, they'll, they'll blow it. And sometimes they're so, oh, oh, and I go, hey, come here. Come here. It's all right. You're okay. And I tell you, he, God is the one who does that with us. We blow it, we make mistakes. Sometimes we just out and out fail. But he is the one that goes, hey, listen. I take pleasure in the weak. I delight in you, in your frailty. And beloved, this is the beginning place of understanding the love of God. This is the beginning place of knowing God's love. I'm not talking about those that are rebellious in heart. I'm talking about those that are sincere, but they're immature. And that's us. The sincere and immature. Welcome to the group of the sincere and immature. You know, I, I think about that. I go, God, one day I'd, really, I'd, I'd love to be mature in love. I'd love to be mature in God. One day I'd really like to grow up. He goes, it's okay. Your heart's got to lean toward me. You've got a yes. He goes, in the sincerity, that sincere yes, though you're weak. He goes, do you know how it moves me? See, that's the maiden's journey, and beloved, that's our journey. And that's not point ten. That's where the journey starts. It starts with this. I am dark, but he loves me anyway. I am weak. And prone to failure, but God is moved by me. He takes pleasure in me. Beloved, I tell you, 
There are so many things that, that tell us that that's not his, his heart his, and his attitude toward us. But uh, the, the truth of the scripture is clear. He loves the weak. He loves the broken. He gets down in the dust for the harlot. And the one that's dark and frail, he is in love with us. And so, from there, he begins to explain to her how that she can find her way out of her crisis. She's in a spiritual crisis. In the book, she's burnt out and bruised. She says she's been keeping others' vineyards, but she hasn't taken care of her own. And, and she's been burnt in the, in the sun, and, and she is burned out and broken. And he begins to tell her how to come out of that state of burnout and that state of, of being broken and, and being so aware of her own sin rather than aware of his delight. And so he, he begins to tell her, and the way he tells her is he, he begins to uh, give her a little bit of an instruction, and then he just says, but by the way, you are my love. You are my fair one. You, you are, and he begins to go through all these different facets of the, the uh, budding virtues of her immaturity. He goes, but I see this in you, and I see this in you, and I see this in you, and I see this. And he goes, these things, oh, do you know the way they move me? And so he sort of capsulates that, little conversation there in chapter 1 with verse 15. He just says it this way. He goes, Behold, you are fair. My love, behold, you are fair. She is broken down, burnt out, immature. And he doesn't speak to her about her shortcomings and nail her because of her failures. He says, no, I see the lean. I see the the desire for good in you. I see the intention of your heart. I see these virtues. And he says, oh, when I think of you, he goes, behold, you are beautiful. Now, she is immature. Nothing has really changed in her life. She's completely in her immature state, in darkness. He goes, you are beautiful. And he calls her out of that place of darkness by declaring over her the way he sees her. And I tell you, that's what the Lord does with us. So many times when we are in that place of brokenness and frailty and and darkness and dryness, we feel like the voice of the Lord is saying, you are blowing it. Come on, do better. What's wrong with you? Here's all your problems. Get them right. And I tell you, the Lord His voice is not primarily that way. His voice is primarily the way we see it here in the scripture. His voice is primarily speaking to us of the beauty of our heart to him. And he says, you may not have it all together yet, but I tell you what, you've got these things going for you. He goes, you are beautiful to me. You're the one I love. And I love how he emphasizes it in verse 15. He goes, behold, it's almost like the Lord stops all of heaven. And he says your name. He says, look angels. Look around and see. And look at her. She might be immature, but oh, the heart that says yes. She's beautiful. He goes, you are fair, my love. My love, the one I love. You are fair. Behold, all of creation, look and see. She's looking at me. I remember years ago, I, I got this image, you know, if you do the, the math and you figure out how many there are born again in the earth, it's about 600 million, about one out of 10 
the, the population on the planet is born again. And, and I remember the Lord just giving me this little image. It's like if you boil that down, that's one out of ten. So imagine there's a room with ten people. And you open the door and Jesus is standing at the door. And Jesus walks in the room with a smile on his face and pleasure in his heart and love for humanity. He walks in that room desiring to gaze in the eyes of every individual and communicate to them his delight and his desire and his love for them. Well, he opens the door and he walks in the room and you're in there with nine others. There's ten in the room. But nine turn their backs on Jesus. And the probing eyes of the Lord looking for the heart that's his His eyes meet yours. One out of ten are setting their gaze on him. And beloved, you're that one. And I think of this verse. I feel like when the Lord locks eyes with you and he sees you, whose heart is is sincere toward him, I feel like he just stops everything. He says, behold, look at her. Look at him. He's beautiful to me. He's the one I love. She's the one I love. This is my beloved. And that's verse 15 and 16. He goes, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. He goes, you have dove's eyes. And we say in, internally, we go, what do you mean dove's eyes? See, doves, are, they're, they're monogamous. They only, they only mate with one. He says, your eyes are like the eyes of a dove, fixed on me, focused on me. You don't, you, in your heart, you don't want anything else. You want me. We go, God, I've got all these other issues, and I am, oh, I'm, I mean, ugh, my, ugh, my heart. He goes, no, I see you the way you are inside. I see the sincerity. He goes, you have dove's eyes. Behold your fair, behold your fair, you have dove's eyes. And then she answers, and see, this is what happens to us. When we get impacted by the Lord with his vantage point of us, it it automatically evokes this response. No, behold, you are handsome. You're beautiful, Jesus. You're my beloved. You are pleasant. Jesus, I love you. He goes, I love you. And this flowing back and forth in love is how how the Lord created us to, to operate in life, that we would be invigorated by the revelation of his delight and his love for us, and then we would flow back and forth in love with him. That's what causes passion to arise in the human heart, the revelation of God's delight and desire for you. The other day, I I went through the whole book of Song of Solomon. I read it several times this week, just allowing the words to wash over me. And once you get past some of the symbols, and once you understand kind of what they're saying, I tell you, it's so impacting to to the emotions. But I'm reading through it, and I realize this. I I just decided I'm going to underline every time he says something about me. And I start underlining my love. You're fair. You have dove's eyes. My love, you're fair. And, and all the way through the book, and I begin to underline, he, and he, when he gives all the different facets of, 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 of the attributes that he sees in us that are pleasant to him, that, that, that cause pleasure to happen in his heart, and, and I'm underlining, and I go through the whole book, and I'm underlining and underlining, and I'm looking, and I'm going, my goodness. And, and, and by the and time I get to the end, 84 times in eight chapters, he says something nice. Something affirming, something wonderful to us or about us. 84 times in eight chapters. And I just want to ask you something. I just want to ask you something. Especially when things are rough, but just in general. 
is the voice of the Lord mostly affirming to you? Is it mostly expressing his love and his passion and his pleasure for you? Because actually in the book of Song of Solomon, 100% of the times that the Lord speaks to the maiden, 100% the times he speaks, he speaks in an affirming and loving way, hello, and never demeaning, not once. Not one time, never demeaning. 84 times in eight chapters. And the thing is, it's really mostly uh, in three chapters where he's just over and over. He's just gushing in love. He's trying to express to us the way he feels and thinks about us. Over and over and over, 84 times, he, he's affirming me. He's, he's expressing his love for me. Over and over. Not once is he demeaning me. Not once is he saying, what's wrong with you? You should be doing better. You should measure up. How come you're not as good as so-and-so? You know what I believe? I believe one of the key attacks of the enemy is to impersonate the voice of the Lord to us in a demeaning, demoralizing way. And we assume it's God's correction, and I tell you, it's the voice of the adversary trying to tear down the knowledge of God in your mind. He's trying to be an apostle. He's, he's trying to appear as the voice of our beloved beating us. And instead, I tell you, the voice of our beloved, he is always affirming us. I want to ask you something. What is going on in God's heart, in the mind of the Lord? What's going on in his mind towards you when he gives us the book that describes the romance, and every single time, I'm talking about the book of Song of Solomon, and every single time in the book, every time he addresses us, it's affirming and loving and blessing rather than demeaning and demoralizing. What does that say about his emotions towards you? See, even our mentalities of correction, we think of God you know, correcting us sort of with a, a mean hand often, but he loves and therefore, he corrects. He chastens us because he loves. He doesn't do it with anger and angst and, and a mean spirit. He actually sows it in peace. Even correction is as a function of his love. I tell you, there is, and it's happening, but there is coming such a tidal wave of revelation. You've got to believe this. I mean, just hear me. This is coming. And it's happening, but it's coming. There's a tidal wave of revelation about the true knowledge of God and the people of God on the earth at the end of the age. They are going to know their God. They're going to know what he's like. They're going to know what he says, what he feels. They're going to know his emotions. They're going to know their God. And they're going to do great exploits because of love. I don't think we've, I don't think we've cracked the surface yet on understanding the heart of the God that affirms, the heart of the bridegroom that passionately affirms continuously to draw us into light and beauty and passion, draw us, drawing us out of darkness and brokenness through affirming us, not demeaning us. Oh, I love it. I love it. So she begins to encounter him in this place of, of love and, 
and flowing back and forth in love. And, and in chapter 2, right there in verse 4, she explains it. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. The banqueting house, it's the house of wine. And she's talking about drinking deeply of the love of God and flowing back and forth and, and, and the inebriation of, 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 of experiencing his love. I tell you, there's something that happens to the emotions when you experience the love of God in, in, in big doses. Your heart becomes buoyant, and you almost take on a, a, an inebriated effect. I mean, you almost take on a, an intoxicated kind of, kind of demeanor. I, you know, you kind of met the person, and they fell in love. And I, and I see it often because we work with young people so much. And they fall in love, and you start trying to talk to them, and you're like, hey, are you there? Like, is there any? I mean, lights are on, but no one's home. It's like they just drunk on love. It's like, okay, no, you really got real life to deal with, and, you know, you've got these issues. No, we're going to get married. Well, how old are you? Well, we're 16, but we're getting married. No, it's like, hey, ho. And they've fallen in love, quote, unquote. Love does have this inebriating effect on the emotions. It truly does. It brings buoyancy to our heart. And we are receiving doses of the love of God, unadulterated doses of his emotions toward us, it causes our hearts to come alive. She says, that's what he's done to me. He's brought me to the banqueting house. (laughs) He's made me drunk on love. She goes, I'm alive in love. And she says, and his banner over me is love. Everything he's doing over my life, everything that his, his actions, all the actions of his, of his heart toward me, all the, the movements of his heart toward me, it's all about love. It's always been about love. And that's what it's about, the banner of the Lord over your life. The banner of the Lord over your life. It's about love. It's not about God trying to make you a slave. It's not about God trying to inhibit you from having fun. It's not about God trying to press you to see how much you can do. The banner over your life is the love of God. His banner over me is love. And then she says this. I love it. She says, sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples. She goes, I am lovesick. She goes, sustain me and refresh me. She goes, I want to never leave this place. I want to be alive in love. I want to be sustained in it. And I want to be refreshed continually. I want to continue to have new experiences of the love of God imparted in my heart. Sustain me so I don't grow dry in it. And refresh me so it's new continuously. She goes, because you have messed me up. She goes, I am lovesick. You've brought me to this place where nothing else matters. You've brought me to this place where... I don't desire anything else. Now I love it when Jesus looks at the disciples after he preaches that hard message in John 6 and, and they, he, they said, uh, he said, are you guys going to leave too? They said, where else do we go? You alone have the words of life. They're looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, we're lovesick. We can't do anything else but be with you. She goes, keep me in this place. Make it new forever. She goes, because my heart is so alive. I never want it to end. I'm lovesick. And then in verse 8, something happens to her that changes her whole world. I don't know how I'm going to get through chapter 4, but I'm going to do my best. Verse 8, look at it. Chapter 2, it says, the voice of my beloved. I love it. It has a little exclamation point. You can see she goes, yes, I hear his voice. He's coming. 
Behold, he comes leaping on the mountains and skipping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. See, what's happened at this point is she's seen him as this romantic, this one that's drawing her alive in love and and refreshing her and sustaining her and and causing her to drink of the banqueting house, the the wine of his love. But this time he comes as as a virile, strong gazelle leaping on mountains, and the mountains speak of spiritual warfare and, and kingdoms, and, and he comes as this conquering warrior now, and she's only seen him as this romantic, drawing her heart in love, and here he comes as this powerful warrior on mountains, effortlessly taking over kingdoms, fighting spiritual warfare, leaping on mountains, and then she sees him. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice, and I just love to think of Jesus. See, he's not the one that's behind the wall. She is. She is alive in love, but she's in her comfort zone, and I love to think of Jesus peering through the window of our lives, looking at us with eyes of passionate fire, Uh, you know, longing for partnership with us. He's wanting to draw us out. She's wanting to be drawn away and run together. She prayed it just right there in chapter 1, verse 4. And now he shows up as the strong one, leaping on the mountains, and he's gazing at her with eyes of fire through the lattice and through the window. He's looking in through the walls, into the walls, in through the the, the windows of her heart, and he's saying, I want you to come with me. I want you to come in conquest. I want you to come and, and, and do what it is my father's commissioned me to do, and it's to take the nations of the earth, to, to conquer for the kingdom of God and he's gazing at her with a longing desire that she would partner and he and then he says this verse 10 he says uh, she says my beloved spoke and said to me rise up my love my fair one and come away and he's answering the call of her heart he's answering the prayer draw me away and let us run he says come away with me he's asking for the let us run and she's she is stunned she thought it was all about cakes and raisins and apple trees and banqueting houses of wine and just feeling the presence of the Lord invigorating her life. And she doesn't comprehend it yet, but it's the first and second commandment in concert that actually are going to bring her to the highest place of pleasure. It's not the second commandment without the first commandment. It's both of them together, being drawn away in love and running together with him. See, what's he doing? He's changing the secret place. Before, the secret place was in his chambers, but now the secret place with him, it's on the mountains. And I tell you, if you you can stay in the secret place, in the place of conquest or in the place of solitude, but it's where the Lord says the secret place is that we have got to continue to go. And so he calls her to the mountains in conquest and and spiritual warfare, really. He calls her to to the mountains. And she says in verse 16, I know he's mine and I know I'm his. And he feeds his flock among the lilies. And she says, but until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved. She's talking about the shadows of her own heart. She goes, I need the gray areas to flee away, and I need light to be on me. I need to be perfect before I can go to this place with you. Therefore, turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle. Be like a stag. You go upon the mountains, and it's the mountains of Bether. Bether means separation. She says, I am not ready to go with you yet. 
I love you and I know you're mine and I know I'm yours. There's confidence in her heart, but she says, I'm not willing to go there with you yet. She sends him away. It's an act of disobedience. So many times we feel like that. We feel like, man, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready, Jesus. I, I, I need the secret place. And he's saying to us, you don't have to forfeit the secret place to be with me in obedience. It's a both and. And so what does she do? In, in chapter 3, verse 1 says, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. She's looking for him in the familiar secret place, the place of intimacy. But guess what? He's not there. He's on the mountains. And she enters into a little season of divine discipline where the Lord pulls back his presence for a season to cause the longing in her heart to come to a crescendo place and to bring her into voluntary obedience and love. And what happens is this. She goes looking for him, but she can't find him. She's looking for him in the familiar verses and the familiar worship, and she can't find him. And all of a sudden, she realizes this. It's better with him on the mountains than it is in my comfort zone without him. She says, I I don't want anything but to be with you. And sometimes the Lord does that in our lives where we kind of stray. He'll just step back a, a step or two to cause the longing to go deep in our hearts. And he's, he's causing us to be drawn to him. He's causing lovesick, lovesickness to come to a ripe place in us so that we will never say no again. He's dealing with our propensity and our darkness and our propensity to, to say no and think that we know a better way. He goes, no, 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 my love. I know the best way. I know the way that will bring you to the, the greatest amount of pleasure and fulfillment in your life. And here is the way. And look at verse 4 in chapter 3. It says, Scarcely had I passed by them, talking about the watchmen in the city, when I found the one I love. And look, the divine discipline, it does what it's supposed to do. And she says, When I found the one I love, I held him and I wouldn't let him go. I held him and I wouldn't let him go. You ever felt that way? You go through a thing where you go... You know, I feel like the Lord's telling me to do this, but I'm just not, I'm not quite there. And, and your heart goes dry a little bit, and you go, Oh, Jesus, where are you? Okay, okay, whatever you say, Lord, anything, anything but being without you. Because I promise you, out of the boat with me on the water is far better than in the boat with the storm without me. These are the... These are the movements of our lives. You know, I'd never seen this before, and I just want to make mention of it, but there in the the rest of chapter 3, from from verse 6 to verse 11, he shows up again. It's King Solomon. He's a picture of Jesus. He's a picture of the bridegroom. And this time he shows up with 60 valiant men, all with their swords on on their side, because of the terror in the night, it says. And I see the picture of his discipline, And the terror in the night. And I think many times when the Lord is moving in divine discipline in our lives, the enemy loves to try to attack in that place to pervert the knowledge of God. And the Lord says, no, I will release the valiant warrior angels. I will release the 60 valiant on your behalf. I'm a safe savior. I'll never discipline you and beat you. And I won't allow the enemy to have you. I am jealous for you. I am safe. I think it's a contrast in the first part of the chapter of the divine discipline and then the second part of the chapter is his response when the terror in the night comes, the the attacks of the adversary. He goes, no, I am far greater than anything the enemy could bring. Beloved, I want to get to that place 
where my heart is so alive in love that I never let him go. But if I do, I cling to him with all I've got. And then I realize that when the attack of the enemy comes, when the terror in the night comes, he's already dispatched the valiant of the Lord, the angelic host to come and fight on my behalf. I love it. Chapter 4. Nothing's changed. She actually hasn't gone anywhere with him yet. And he starts off the chapter, verse 1. He goes, behold, you're fair, my love. You're beautiful. You look good. And I like you. And you have dove's eyes. He goes, you are amazing. She's not done anything yet. She simply said yes. And that's his attitude towards you. Just the yes. He goes, you are fair. You look good and I like you. Every time he addresses her in in the book of Song of Solomon, 100% of the time, he says, you look good and I like you. You look good and I like you. You are fair, my love. You look good and I like you. And that is always his attitude towards us. So often the enemy tries to pervert the way that God sounds. And finally his heart, it comes to a crescendo. In verse 7, she's, remember, she's not done anything to earn his love. She simply said yes. He says, you are all fair. I see the beauty of your heart. He goes, you are perfect to me. You are all fair, my love. There's no spot in you. Come with me. Come from Lebanon, and come with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana and from the top of Sinir and Hermon. He goes, come from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. He goes, come away with me in conquest on the mountains. You who are beautiful, you who I love, you who are perfect. And I, undoubtedly she's going, no, I still have got issues. He goes, no, there's no spot in you. I see the yes. Your heart is perfect to, toward me. Look at verse 9. He goes, here's what's happening with me. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. God saying that over me. Beloved, we've got to take the story and move it from it being the story of some maiden out there somewhere to the story being about God and us. And he says, Billy, you've ravished my heart. How, Lord? How have I ravished you? You've ravished my heart, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one Look of your eye. What what do you mean? I've I've not done anything. He goes, you looked at me. You said yes. He goes, and my heart is undone. My heart is ravished over you, son. My heart is ravished over you, daughter. He goes, I am so in love with you because of the sincere yes He goes, with one look of your eye. He goes, and oh, with one link of your necklace. I, I love it because a necklace is simply an attempt for a woman to try to beautify herself. She, she puts jewels on to, to, be, to be more beautiful. He goes, one little link of a necklace. You're trying? He goes, there's, there's a desire in your heart to be beautiful for me? He goes, oh, I'm overcome. My heart is ravished over you. Beloved, we can't hear that enough. God's heart is ravished over our little gaze. One look. Let me ask you this. If one look undoes him, what does a steady gaze do? Listen, though you can't feel it all the time, and though it's dry, 
Though sometimes it gets dark. Believe me, I know what it's like when it gets dark. Serving the Lord, and you're like, who turned the lights out? I can't see here. I get nothing. Where are you? You remember the address, the name? It's Humphrey. Here I am. Though I tell you, though we can't feel him all the time. Though we can't see him. He goes, one glance. Hear me. One glance. Because you've ravished me. I just feel like heaven, I feel like the, the, the byline of heaven towards the bride, so often the Lord is just, he's just saying it this way. He's going, do you know the way you move me? Do you know your little glance, the way you make me feel? Do you know how much you've got my heart? One glance, one link. He goes, I'm ravished over you. Not her out there somewhere. Not the preacher. You. Oh, I take pleasure in you. Oh, I love you. Oh, there's nothing that can separate you from my love. Do you know the way you move me? And I love it. It's her response from this. (laughs) She says in verse 16, Scariest prayer ever. Awake, O north wind, and awake, O south. The north winds, the chilling north winds. They speak of the the trials and challenges of life that, that are difficult. She goes, come alive, challenges and trials. Awake, O north wind. She goes, and awake, O south. The winds of, the warm winds of the south, the refreshing winds. She goes, Let them both come and let them blow on my garden. She goes, I don't care if it's trials and challenges, the north winds. I don't care if it's winds of refreshing and warmth. Let them blow on my garden. Why? That it's spices, that that the, the flavor of my heart can flow out and my beloved can come and be pleased. She goes, I'll take whatever happens because I know this, you're in love with me. And whatever happens to me, good, pleasing, you know, blessing or challenging and trials, I know it's formulating love in me. And ultimately, I don't care what I go through as long as you are pleased by the flavor of my life. Let it blow on me so I can please you. It's the scariest prayer ever. But you can't pray it unless you know verse 9. You've ravished my heart. Beloved, this is where he wants to take us to. A people that live in light of the romance. Oh, how do we get out there slugging along on our own? You know, coming to the end of grace and and feeling like we're at this thing alone and God, do you care? How do we even get, how do I even ever get there? When this is true. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse with one look of your eye. I just hear heaven saying over us, I hop Atlanta. Do you know the way you move me? Do you know the way I feel about you? Do you know the way you touch me? Your little yes. I just feel like he's saying, oh, you bless me. Oh, I love you. Amen. Let's stand. 
Never want to leave Jesus. Never want to leave. I never want to leave you, Jesus. I never want to leave this revelation of love. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you, Jesus said. Abide in my love. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Do you know the way you move me? You've ravished me. You've ravished me. You've ravished me. That's what he's saying over us. You've ravished me. You've ravished me. You've ravished me. me. 